right? But once again, let's uh, bow our heads and ask the Christ Jesus who conquered the grave to be with us as we look at his word. Lord, I thank you that you are the grave beard. Lord, every single one of us here has a 100% chance of death. And yet, if we know Jesus, we have a 100% chance of bodily resurrection and life with him forever. And I thank you for that hope that you are a mighty God to save. And I ask that by your might you would give us ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, or if you are near a pew Bible, um, I encourage you to turn, if you're able, and follow along as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 together as a church. 1 Corinthians 6. And we are going to be in verses 1 to 8 today. Uh, I was almost going to do 1 to 11, but... Uh, I really want to focus on, one, on 9, 10, and 11 and give that a full sermon um, next week. So we're going to focus on verses 1 to 8. Did you know, I didn't until I Googled it, but did you know that there are 40 million lawsuits filed every year in the United States? 40 million. And in the United States, anyone can theoretically sue anyone for anything, right? Theoretically. That doesn't mean you end up getting hurt by a judge. Uh, your case might get thrown out. Like this case, for example. In 1991, a very sad, very lonely man named Richard Overton filed, filed a lawsuit for $10,000 against the beer company Bush. Right? Because no matter how many bush lattes he drank, he could not attract the woman that the commercials, these attractive ladies that the commercials portrayed, like if you would drink this beer, you would get these girls. He kept drinking and drinking this beer, and he, he never, he still was lonely and didn't get a girlfriend. Okay? So, he said that was Bush's fault, and he estimated that over five years or whatever, he spent $10,000 on, on Bush <coughs> beer, and so he tried to sue Bush, which it's just, it's, it's, who knows, maybe he just did it as a publicity stunt, but he never even went to court with that one. But the lawsuit was fine, okay? I'm sure you've heard of countless other silly ones. You know, you ever get your coffee cup and it says, caution, contents, hot, right? Hmm. Wonder why? Well, it's because of a lawsuit, which everyone gave that lady who filed that lawsuit a lot of um, flack for filing that lawsuit against McDonald's way back in, I think, early 90s. But the reality was she actually was pretty significantly burned uh, when you actually read into it. I was like, huh. I always laughed about it, but it's like, this poor lady, I mean, they gave her like, coffee that was like 190 degrees and she got six like third degree burns so anyhow regardless that was a lawsuit that she filed and she actually won and got six hundred and ninety thousand dollars from mcdonald's 
or getting hot coffee. So this type of thing happens in our country all the time. Um, however, there are things that get in the way of suing someone. To win a lawsuit requires a lawyer, and a lawyer requires time and money. Time and money that many people don't have. So in reality, in lawsuits, it's oftentimes those with lawyers, those with time, and those with money who win. For example, think of, um, think of like, well, here's a personal example. Um, my uncle was did a lot of electric work for a very large company. Who then just decided not to pay him. But they just broke their contract. They broke the law. But this is a massive company. How's, how, how's my uncle going to get his money? They owe him tens of thousands of dollars. And so in the end, there's, there's really nothing he can do. He doesn't have the time. He doesn't have the money to take this massive company to court. It would be financial suicide. In ancient Rome, the context into which Paul's letter to the Corinthians was written, the civil court dynamics were actually a, a bit similar to this, but far more extreme. Civil court was exclusively the domain of the wealthy and the well-connected. In fact, if a poor person was in court, it was never because they were suing someone else. It was because they were being sued by someone with money, with power, with connections. Usually what happened is a poor person did some work for someone with money, and the, the rich person didn't like the quality of the work, or they just decide they want to get their money back. They want to have you do the work for them and get the money they paid you back. Why? Because they can. And so they just haul you to court because, you know, you didn't put the handle on right. Whatever. The carriage looks funny. The, they would do these type of things, and the secular judges and juries who ruled the first century Roman courts were notoriously corrupt. They were always willing to give a favorable verdict to the person with the most money. Say, you want to win? Well, what's his favorite beer? You know, <laughs> where does he like to eat? He likes gift cards to his favorite restaurant down the road in Corinth. There, you could bribe people to, to give them the verdict you want. And only the rich could do that. This, there, so, so the jingle, you know, there's always a way for those who pay. Okay, this, this is how the court system in the civil courts worked in Rome. This all forms the backdrop for Paul's words here to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8. So against the backdrop of this type of civil court system, all right, here's, remember, where only rich people sue poor people. It's not the other way around. And like I said, there is a little bit of similarity to our modern context. It's very difficult for someone in, in the trades, for example, to take time off of work and go, go sue a bigger company that messed mess them up at great cost to themselves. It doesn't happen often because they just can't. They're stuck. So, 
There's similarities to our modern age. Listen, listen to what happens. This is from the Christian Standard Bible, which is um, the home, like the Holman Bible. They, I think they, they got, there's a couple translation questions here, and I think they do a really good job of it. So I'll read from that. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves be wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So this morning, there's really only one main point supported by five reasons here in these verses that are supporting that point. So I'll, I'll say what Paul's main point is, and I'll, I'll give the reasons here. Paul is basically saying this. Don't ask the world to settle your fights, your family fights, because, one, you will judge the world one day. Two, you're going to judge angels. Three, turning to ungodly judges to solve the church's problems is shameful. Four, Suing your family in general is shameful. I mean, if you sue your family, that takes some, you know, nerve, right? People, even nowadays, if a kid sues his dad in court, you know, really? It's shameful. Five, you ought to choose instead the way of Jesus. So those are Paul's reasons. So I'll, I'll, I'll tackle each one in turn as we work through these verses. So first, don't ask the world to settle your fights because you will judge the world. This is Paul's first reason why Christians ought not drag each other to court in front of the lost and watching world. So I'm going to read these verses again, one or two, and we'll unpack them. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? That would be the church, God's people. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? So, in 1 Corinthians 5, rewind, last week and the week before, the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Corinthian church, the church of Corinth, to make proper judgments about sin in their midst. And... There, in 1 Corinthians 5, a man is sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is cool with it. And he's saying, no, this is not okay. You need to make a judgment about this guy. He's bringing shame to the name of Christ. He's bringing sin into your midst. You need to remove him in the hopes that he'll repent and come back. A repentant man, a new man. But in the meantime, you may need to make a judgment. So again, it's like, 
Well, God's people don't judge people. Well, we need to make judgments about sin and right and wrong. And Paul's calling them to do that in chapter 5. Now, here in chapter 6, he continues. See how 6 is connected? He continues this idea that the church of Jesus ought to be able to judge between right and wrong. Especially when it's going on in their midst. But instead... What was happening is that some of the wealthy people in the church, remember, poorer people didn't take others to court in the Roman world. Wealthy people were dragging others, most likely the poorer folks in the church, they were dragging them into court and suing them over civil disputes about money and property. In the language Paul uses to talk about these court cases, it's not the language used to talk about a murder trial or a rape trial or robbery just somebody took your stuff it's the language of civil disputes so in verse one it's a grievance in verse two it's called trivial cases in verse three it's matters pertaining to this life um just day and day-to-day disputes um that's verse five a dispute and verse Seven and eight, it involves cheating and defrauding other Christians. So the people that are hauling these poorer Christians or other Christians into court are doing it in corrupt ways. They're trying to cheat and defraud them out of their money, legally. How can they do it? Because they have money to do it. Because to use the courts meant you had money. So to use the courts... You had money, and you were trying to get more money from people usually who did not have money. It was just a mess, but it's the way the world worked back then and I, even today to some extent. Although bribes in the West are usually much more subtle. Um, I mean, it happens politically with lobbyists, right? We're lobbying for this cause or that cause, and that's our... Um, our form of it, but in the judicial system, it's frowned upon. But in many places of the world today, if you want the courts to do anything for you, you better have money. Okay? Yeah, especially in Africa, third world countries. Now, we need to understand something really important here. There are Christians who I believe has, have gotten these verses very wrong in their understanding over the years. And it has resulted in great public shame to the family of Jesus. For example, as a church, we sing some songs that are written by what I think is still a great ministry called Sovereign Grace. Sovereign Grace churches, Sovereign Grace music. Um, They've got great music, great songs. We love those songs. And there are many faithful Christians who are part of the Sovereign Grace Ministries organization. Um, However, for years, under their former leader, a man named C.J. Mahaney, um, they, who who again, I think is a sincere Christian, I've read his books, but there was a mistake here that he made. There was some sexual abuse that happened in their churches, and they tried to keep it in-house as a church and deal with the problems in-house. It was some serious stuff. And it caused massive problems that they're still dealing with today. And they're not alone in this. Many churches try to deal with abuse in-house instead of reporting it to the authorities. And often they use this passage to justify that decision. Paul is 
is not talking about crying here. That's not the reason these rich people are bringing these poor people to court. The law does not require you to sue your brother and sister at the family of Jesus over some financial property dispute. It doesn't say, you know, God, God, says, God doesn't say you ought to sue your brothers and sisters because you think they owe you money. It doesn't say, but God does say you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit. I mean, the, the law is clear, and the law of the land requires churches nowadays to report abuse and murder and theft. These are crimes. They're treated differently. It's not what Paul's talking about in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians 6. In different parts of the Bible, like Romans 13, we don't have time to go there, but the Apostle Paul says it's the government's job, God-ordained job, to punish crime. And we pray that governments do it justly. They don't always. But that doesn't mean it's not their job. It doesn't. And yet, what the church is responsible for is for judging rightly what is good and what is evil in their midst. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, a man who had his father's wife is technically committing a crime, actually. Something that was illegal in the Roman world. Incest was illegal. Even though it was a crime that for the rich was probably not likely to be punished other than, you know, you might make the headlines. Um, regardless, if the man, let's say the sin was different. Let's say in 1 Corinthians 5, the man had murdered his stepmother to get his father's money. Then the process that the church went through would have been no different than the process we learned about, 1 Corinthians 5. Kick him out into the world, where he will fall under the just judgment of the world and of his crime, in the hopes that before he faces execution, he will repent and turn back to the Lord and be saved. So, let's look now at the reason Paul gives for why Christians ought not drag each other into court. And the first reason he gives is at the end of verse 2. He says, don't ask the world to settle your fights because we will one day judge the world. This claim that Paul makes is grounded in his Old Testament. Paul doesn't just pull this out of his pocket. No, God's people, biblically, were to be a new humanity. With God as their king, their leader, God's people in the Bible, led by the Messiah Jesus would one day fulfill the task that Adam in the Garden of Eden failed at. What did Adam fail to do? Adam failed to rule the world God's way, listening to God for God's honor. One, so the church would fulfill that task through Jesus. Through Jesus, we one day, in the new creation, will be in charge of the world once more. To rule over it and care for it with justice and righteousness like Jesus. One key place that Paul draws this teaching from is Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. As a church, we preach through Daniel. But this is some verses that you may remember. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, we read this vision Daniel has. A vision that was fulfilled when Jesus ascended the clouds after his resurrection and sat down at the throne at the right hand of his Father in heaven. 
Daniel's writing from the perspective of heaven's courtroom. It's like Daniel's there in the courtroom in his vision. And he says, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. When did Jesus do that? Ah, it's when he ascended into heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given, Jesus was given, dominion and glory and a kingdom. So that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So here in Daniel, there is an individual man, one that looks like a son of Adam, a son of man. It's Jesus. And he receives God's kingdom. God's rule and God's reign over creation and heaven and earth is bound up in a man. In the man, Jesus Christ. But a few verses later in Daniel, we see that the kingdom that the Son of Man, Jesus, receives is actually given to the saints. They receive the kingdom. Hebrews 7, 18 says, The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. That's why the author of Hebrews says, since then we are receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. We, the saints, receive the kingdom. Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, in other words, overcomes sin and temptation at the end of the day, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this doesn't mean that billions of Christians are going to be stacked up like turtles on the throne of Jesus as far as the eye can see. Like, well, isn't that what the Bible said? We're going to sit with Jesus on his throne. What does that mean? Or, or that we all get to get turns for eternity. You get like your five-minute turn to, to sit with Jesus on his throne. No, that's, that's not what's going on here. This is an image that we will reign with Jesus we will do what Adam and Eve were supposed to do with Jesus' help, okay? We will take care of God's world, and we'll do it with justice and righteousness and fairness in the new world that God's going to make right here one day when Jesus returns as king. But even now, as God's people, we are called to judge rightly within God's space kingdom okay the place where he reigns and so as christians we are to judge between good and evil in our midst and so what paul is saying here is why are you dragging your internal fights before the world when as saints you're destined to be judges of the world one day you will rule the world with christ in the new creation. The second thing Paul says, don't ask the world to settle your fights because you're going to judge angels. That's not something we usually think about. But here Paul argues that the saints of Jesus, along with Jesus, will stand in judgment one day over all the rebellious spiritual beings, angels, who have allied with the devil against their creator. The point he makes is, if you will judge the angels, how much more the things of this world? Verse, see that? Verse 3, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? Don't have time to delve into saints judging angels too much there. But there is more that can be said about that. 
Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he heard the temptation from the devil, a spiritual being in rebellion against God, he should have judged Satan right then and right there. But he did not. He failed. Instead, he listened to the devil. The saints will judge spiritual beings that are in rebellion against God through our Savior Jesus one day. Verse 4, there's a third reason. Don't ask the world to settle your fights because turning to the ungodly judges to solve church problems is shameful. Think about this. Have you ever been embarrassed to ask help from someone? I'm just too embarrassed to ask for help with that. Usually, that's a sign of a lot of pride. And it's simple. Okay? I'd rather wander the store for an hour looking for what I came for than just ask somebody for help. It's either pride or just stupidity. It's one or the other. Okay? I... I learned this a long time ago. My life is so much easier if I just make a beeline for the nearest Walmart person. But you know what? That's the trick. They all disappear when you want them. But when you don't want them, they're standing around in groups. I, I don't get it. But anyhow, or they try to hide from you. Beep, 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 busy. Anyhow, asking for help is sometimes, sometimes there's a, you know, it's not asking for help. It's a sign of, pride or stubbornness, but there are times where you should be embarrassed to ask for help or because you did ask for help. Here's an example. Imagine I get up and I'm sitting on the couch and uh, this never happens by the way. And I say, Holly, where's my shoes? And she says, um, did you look? And I say, no. And she said, um, where did you put them? Why did I ask Holly where my shoes were if I didn't look for them and I was the last one to touch them? That's a silly example, right? Of I should be ashamed to ask her for something where look, she, I know where, you know, I, 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 I need to look. Okay? Maybe a little more serious note. If you ask your boss to help you at work with something that you were more than confident to do yourself, and you'd been trained to do yourself, that's not only just insulting to your boss, it's lazy. It's shirking your duty. You're like, hey, can you help me with this? And be like, I, that's your job, dude. I've got my job, you've got your job. Now, maybe if your boss is just standing there, but if he's got other things, to call him and ask for help in something you know, that, that's kind of, you should be embarrassed about that. That's, that's not right, okay? In the same way that I should be embarrassed when I ask Holly a really obvious question, and then I'm just, you know, if I had stopped and thought about it for three seconds, I would have known where I left that thing, okay? So Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying, verses 4 to 6, if you, if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? That's where the translation differs in different translations, but I think this one has it right. Um, I, and I'm kind of getting into that, but do you appoint people that aren't in the church to be your judge? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one wise person among you who's able to arbitrate, it's like settle a disagreement between fellow believers? Instead, you should be able to sort this out on your own. 
You shouldn't have to ask the Walmart people where this is. You know, that, that's what's going on here. Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Come on, guys, says Paul. Can you be so foolish? Can, there, can it really be that there's nobody wise enough among you to determine some of these fights? Well, maybe. I mean, you won't kick a guy out who's sleeping with his stepmom. That's pretty bad. But here he's really turning this on them, and he says, you, you don't... You think you're so wise in other areas. He's already talked about that in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4. I mean, they were pretty proud of their wisdom, this church. They had all the head knowledge. But he's like, if you're so wise, you don't even have the wisdom to sort out these disagreements between believers to see the corruption that's going on when rich Christians in your church are hurting poor people in the church. No, God's people should be competent to help God's people work through disputes like this. You think the courts are going to help you, says Paul? They're really corrupt. Fourth point, don't ask the world to settle your fights because suing your family to begin with is shameful. In the Roman world, it was really frowned upon to drag a family member into court over money or property disputes. And I think even today, as I mentioned earlier, in our society, people shake their heads in shock, annoyance, sadness, um, at inheritance disputes between family members. Even though people still drag their siblings to courts today, it is considered shameful. It's pretty low, I guess is the way to say it. Like, that's pretty low down to, to sue your dad, to sue your brother. Even if they were, you know, a crook. Really? You can't just let it go? Yeah, you got to sue them for $5 million? For reals? Um, usually it's the rich that get caught up in all this, right? We're family. And that's what Paul says. It's no different than the family of Jesus. These are your spiritual brothers and sisters. Listen to verse 7 and 8. As it is, Paul says, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So, sadly, what Paul's saying is when family brings family to court over money, you know who loses? Family. When family sues family, the loser is family. Every time. You might get your money, but you lost your dad. That's basically what Paul's saying. When you get your brother and sister in court and you sue them, you get money out of them, you may win. Remember, this was in a very corrupt system. When If you were trying to sue your brother there, it was just a mess back then. You might win because you have more money than they do, but in the end, you're defeated because the family of Jesus loses every time. And you lose your brother for whom Christ died. There's a better way. This leads to the fifth and final thing Paul tells the Corinthian church in these verses. Don't ask the world to settle your fights because you ought to choose the way of Jesus instead. And I summarize this, choose the way of Jesus. Um, Paul doesn't say, choose the way of Jesus. But that's my summary of what Paul says here. Verse 7, near the end, he says, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? 
He's trying to persuade the Christians in this church that it is far better to be the one wrong and cheated out of money and property than it is to use the corrupt court systems of the day as a tool to drag what you feel you deserve out of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's basically another way of Paul saying what Jesus says, the Bible says, don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. In fact, by enduring undeserved injury to themselves and just enduring it, by not dragging fellow brothers and sisters in court into the drama fest of the Roman civil court system, Christian believers would be following the example of Jesus, who cried out for forgiveness for his enemies in the face of his own unjust suffering and death. Now, Paul is not saying that if your brother or sister in the Lord cheats you out of money or acts selfishly towards them, you just love them. No, sometimes it's not loving to let people continue in selfish sin patterns that hurt them and hurt others. You can speak the truth to them in love. And the whole church can use the wisdom of the Lord to hold people to account for their sins and to call out. If you bring it to the church, like Paul's saying, to settle these things, the church together can say, listen, brothers, we've listened to you. We've heard the stories, and both of you are in the wrong, but man, what you did was not right. You bear the lion's share. You, what are we going to do to fix this together? Okay? You don't have the money, maybe we can help. Maybe we, and you really need the money. Okay, you don't need $10 million. <laughs> okay, is it 100000 and you really need it because of what he did? Okay, maybe we can figure this out. There may, there may be some instances, though, where a believer must go to court against another person who calls themselves a Christian but is living in sin to face the consequences of those actions in our, what I would say, be more just legal system. For example, here's, here's an example, and you, we could have hundreds of examples of this. A church may be called upon, a church may be called upon to testify in court to against a pastor who's on trial for abuse. But as a general principle, Christians ought not drag their Christian family into the courts of this world to pull money out of them. That's the main thing here. I'm going to give you a really practical example. Many of you, maybe all of you, might not be aware of this. But in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we'll say we, we as a church are loosely a part of, they recently voted in a new president of the convention, something they do each year. The convention is a convening, a gathering of churches, independent churches. So we are an independent church, but we convene with the convention, okay? There's about 50,000 churches a part of the convention. Right, that's a big convention. Had I personally the desire to go to their huge gathering down in Nashville, I, I could have gone down and voted on who our president's going to be, and the president's in charge of a lot of the 
um, stuff behind the scenes. It's an important job. Um, okay. There's been some huge topics that are proving divisive in the Southern Baptist Convention. One of them is how the convention as a whole, which includes, again, like 50,000 churches, how should the big convention deal with individual churches that are supposed to be autonomous individual churches that are not dealing well with issues of sexual abuse that's in their ranks? This is a huge thing. Uh, it's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's not as cut and dry as it looks, because it's like, okay, technically we're supposed to be independent churches, but what does this huge big convention have to do? How can they tell this church, no, you were in the wrong to not report that? Or it, 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 it is a little tricky. However, and, and there's disagreement. There's also disagreement about critical race theory and how Christians should wrestle with that and respond to it. So I'm bringing this up right now because this was one of the elections in the SBC that was like the closest race ever. And one of the guys that represents a more conservative group in the Southern Baptist Convention was a man named Mike Stone. And he almost run. He almost won. Um, near the end of his race, uh, you know, trying to, you know, win the nomination, another Southern Baptist leader named Russell Moore released some documents and audio recordings, I should say leaked some documents and audio recordings that made Mike look really bad in some of the things he was saying about how to treat sexual abuse survivors and just different things like that. And Mike probably lost the election because of it. And he also lost book sales, or so he claims, and other speaking engagements because of what Russell Moore leaked. In fact, Mike must have gotten out of his calculator and he tallied up his losses. And this past October, he sued Russell Moore for $750,000. And I'll tell you what, how do I know about this? Because the press was all over it. I don't search these things out, but. They, it, oh man, they love to cover any drama going on in the biggest, biggest Protestant denomination in the West. Now, after Mike Stone sued Russell Moore, and I'm not defending what Russell Moore did, leaking these things, it, it's all a mess. Um, I don't think it was a wise way to go about it, even if his motive was to draw the attention to true things. Um, when Mike announced that he was suing Russell Moore, and this hit the press, Mike got tons of pushback from the Christian world because of this loss, his lawsuit. And it was because of these verses that we looked at today. And I actually think this situation, Mike and Russell in this situation, was almost an exact fit to what Paul's talking about. The only difference is that these two brothers in Christ, who I do believe are both followers of Jesus, they didn't attend the same local church. That's the only thing. They're big denomination leaders, okay? Regardless, suing a well-known brother in Christ for libel and defamation and loss of book sales in a civil court, it's just, it feels so arbitrary and petty. How do you know it was going to be $750,000? What it be? $600,000. I mean, it's just, and so I can almost hear Paul saying, Mike, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
This is not the way of Jesus. And listen, this is the only reason I decided to share with pretty personal story and name names. Because Mike, to his credit, dropped the suit in December. And he gave the media these closing words. I'll read them. These are the words of Mike Stone. I have trusted the Lord with my eternal soul, my family, and my ministry. I can and I do trust him in this present matter. He does all things well, knows all things perfectly, and judges all things and all people rightly in his own sovereign time. Well, those are true words and well spoken. <coughs> Mike did well to walk that back because there was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians and leaders going, what are you doing? This is, this is 1 Corinthians 6. Like, suing for libel and defamation, and this is not good. You made a bad situation worse. And the tragic thing about this whole situation, you know who the winner was? Nobody. And the loser? The family of Jesus. Family of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus. This is not the way to overcome evil. So, I wanted, yeah, I just wanted to give you a concrete example. You know, as, as a Southern Baptist church, we should be aware of these things, at least loosely. There's a lot of craziness going on. But, again, these guys are, they are sincere believers, but I think that was a mistake. And, in conclusion, I just want to wrap up everything we've seen. Paul is explaining here how Christians should deal with private disputes regarding money or property between fellow believers, and in particular, believers who are members of the same church. His letters written in a first century Roman context in which the social elite, the rich people, would regularly bring poorer people before corrupt magistrates. It's a totally unjust system to begin with. And so, in the words of one Bible commentator that I found helpful, a guy named Andy Maselli, he says, The further removed a contemporary situation is from what Paul addresses, the more it becomes a wisdom issue in which not all the particulars of this passage carry over directly. So there's some basic principles in what Paul addresses, but it, there's a lot of differences, too, with where we're at in our modern age. And so... 1 Corinthians 6 does not teach that Christians must never sue unbelievers who've robbed or stolen from them. It doesn't teach that. That's a wisdom issue. 1 Corinthians 6 does not teach that Christians should never sue people who call themselves Christians. Many people who call themselves Christians are absolute scoundrels. In a clear-cut case where corruption is at play and the church of Jesus has been consulted, the church may use its judgment and its wisdom given by God to counsel a brother or sister in Christ to sue, to recoup money stolen. Okay, example. Imagine a pastor secretly steals money from his congregation for years and becomes very wealthy on his church's dime. This happens all the time. Acquiring houses and cars through embezzling funds. Give to my ministry. Because I need a jacuzzi. Give to my whatever, this fund or that. You know, 
sow a seed of faith, you see them on TV, and, and give so that I can have a third private jet to go wherever I want. Embezzlement. And by the time, imagine this pastor's caught, the church that he's been praying on has no money left to pay for their bills. They're faced with the decision to close the doors or to take him to court and try to get back the funds that he stole from them. This kind of thing happens. The guy's a charlatan. I, I don't really think 1 Corinthians 6 applies in a case like this. He's committed a crime. It's a crime. Pyramid schemes, embezzlement. He should go to court and be judged by the world, just like that man in 1 Corinthians 5 had to be removed. Our legal system's not perfect, but it's far better than the civil courts of ancient Rome. Justice will be done in that situation. Our world does not look kindly upon corporate scandal in general. But at the end of the day, you know, that might feel pretty out there. I haven't run off with our offering box yet, you know, although hunting does get expensive. <laughs> at the end of the day, this passage has a very direct application to all of us. The church of Jesus has the resources through Jesus that we need to resolve fights between each other. And one of the greatest resources that we have as a church is to use the power of forgiveness to absorb the cost of what our brothers or sisters did to hurt us instead of making them pay. I want to hurt you back. They say mean things about you because you said mean things to me. As Christians, we can be people of release. Releasing people. Why? Because we have a Jesus who releases us from our sins every single moment of the day. And we turn to him and ask for forgiveness. Jesus forgave us our debts so we could forgive our debtors and release those who have sinned against us. Another way this text applies to us is really applicable, I think, on a day-to-day -day level. God's family needs to protect each other and demonstrate love and affection for each other verbally, in private, and in public. One of the great tragedies of hauling off brothers and sisters in court is things that could have been resolved, like brothers and sisters just sitting down and talking about it, went public. And hit tabloids, okay? And, and it wasn't, it was a tragedy for the church. And so, I want to ask, how do you talk? If you call yourself a Christian, and you really are following of Jesus, how do you talk about other Christians? You might not drag somebody to court physically, but do you drag them into judgment with your mouth regularly? Does your posture towards other Christians reflect Jesus' heart towards sufferers and sinners? Have you ever heard someone say something that was really mean or snarky about a Christian who's a part of your church family? How do you respond? Do you dive right in, blasting your brother? Oh, you don't know the half of it. Guess what else they did? 
Do you say snarky, sarcastic things about your family in Christ? In our world today, and I think all ages, a favorite pastime of people is to talk bad about coworkers, their friends, their family. We put people down for a whole host of reasons, usually to feel better about ourselves. And I believe this is one way God's people can stand out. We can refuse to participate in gossip and slander. Now, I'm not saying we justify or make excuses before the world about real sin that exists in the family of Jesus. Say, you know, I know we did that, but that's okay. We, we can say, no, that, that sounds serious. Um, I'm not saying we turn a blind eye. But we can say things that show love and affection for our brothers and sisters without denying someone's negative experience. We can say, say I, for example, we can say this. I know my brother in Christ really struggles with anger at times. It's hurt me sometimes. And I'm sorry that you were hurt by it. He and I have talked about it. He's come a long way. He's growing. It's breaking his heart too sometimes. He's asking God for forgiveness regularly. Say, have you talked to him about it? Have you talked to me about it? Have you talked to him about it? How he hurt you? That's not making an excuse for your brother's sin. It's putting it in perspective for people. We are all sinners. Every single one of us struggles with anger. It just looks different. You know the person who murders struggles with anger. Just as much as the person who screams out of control. Or the person who doesn't say a word. Anger looks different. But every human being struggles with anger. Because we all feel like things are evil outside of us. And we want to fix it with our... "Mm, Just make it pay. Make it better. Jesus can forgive us for our sinful actions of anger. So helping people put sin in perspective by saying, you know what? I know my brother struggles with that. But I do too, actually. Yeah, you said, you know, that that my that thing my sister did, you just told me about, that sounds selfish. Have you talked to them about it? No. Um, you might want to. I think they'd want to know. Um, I know that in my own life, I've really struggled with selfishness, and it's really helped me when people come and talk to me about it. That's a conversation stopper, actually. That stops gossip. When you divert gossip, oh, can you believe what this guy did? He's such a... And, and when you say, well, I've done something similar. I, I, I can understand. Um, I know what it feels like to be lazy. He's such a lazy man. Yeah, you might not be lazy at work, but how many of you know something you really should do, but don't do it? That's laziness. Okay, so you may be the hardest worker in the world, but lazy in a different area. All right, all of us can relate to laziness and to say, I have laziness in my life. I have selfishness in my life. I have pride in my life. I have anger in my life that needs the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. Every conversation about sin, failures, imperfections can always lead back to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you have to go Jesus on every single conversation with somebody, but you could. What I am saying is that when 
brothers and sisters in Christ come into court in the eyes of the world, verbal court, which happens all the time. As Christians, we have a choice. Are we going to talk bad about them because they go to a different church or because they go, you know, because they're different than us? Or are we going to follow Jesus in his heart towards sufferers and sinners? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the story of the prodigal son where you show us your heart towards sinners as a father. Sinner, the sinning son returns to you and you run to embrace him. And I pray, Lord, that that would be our, our ultimate response towards each other when we find sin in each other's lives, that we would run to embrace each other with the love of Christ. That would be our posture and our heart. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us as a church to, to use wisdom to settle disputes among each other in our own homes, in our church, in our relationships with others. Help us not be too proud to ask for help from fellow believers either. And I ask that we would be people of truth and love. In Jesus' name. Supper is a meal for people who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus with all their hearts. Okay, so if you are sitting here and you say, I follow Jesus, I am a part of Jesus' family, I trust Jesus to pay for my sins, then please join us as we eat. And if you are not there yet with Jesus, you just got more questions and more to learn. I encourage you, just let it pass by you. It's not for you yet until the day you give your allegiance to the risen Lord Jesus. Okay, there's, there's no shame in saying, I'm not there with Jesus yet. There's an invitation. There's an invitation. Come to the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins and turn to him. This bread and this cup symbolize Jesus' work on our behalf, that he gave his body, which is symbolized by the bread, on the cross, that we might be forgiven. And he shed his blood that we might have life. I'm going to give us a moment of silence to just think about what Jesus has done. And we'll pray and take it together.
the bread of Jesus that Jesus gave us is to be a symbol of his body, which we talked about last week, is his, symbolically his church. We are the body of Christ, the family of Jesus. We're going to get there in 1 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the bread symbolizes the unity of the body because it all came from one loaf. And you got lots of little pieces, but if you were to put them all back together again, it's one. So all these pieces that are in each of our hands symbolize the unity of the body of Christ. Think about the horror of eating bread on a Sunday, Lord's Day, saying, I'm unified with that guy, but tomorrow we're going to court. Okay? That's, that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 6. Every time they're eating the Lord's Supper, they're taking this bread, well, we'll see you later, it's, some of them were picking out before the poor people could even get there, eating all the bread, and then the poor people would come in and be like, you guys are drunk with communion wine and ate all the bread. We got nothing. But there's, you think every churches have problems. Man, i got to find a perfect church because churches have problems. Just read the New Testament. They have a lot of problems, right? Listen, this bread symbolizes our union. So I encourage you, as you, as you eat it, be, be asking the Lord, Lord, is there ways that I'm living that breaks apart your body? Is there ways that I'm talking that's hurting someone else that's holding the same piece of bread as me. Help me to fix it. So Jesus said, take and eat in remembrance of me. And then this cup. This cup symbolizes the life of Jesus. We need life to live, right? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly gave his life for us. Let's drink and remember Jesus. Lord, thank you for your life that was given on the cross for us. Thank you for your body that was broken so that we as your people, your body, might have life. And I ask right now, Lord, that you would bring to our hearts great affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, one way that we grow in affection for each other is by spending time with each other. Lord, we all have busy schedules. I ask that you would help us as a church to have wisdom going into this year of ways to spend time with each other so that our affection for each other would grow and our ability to love each other like Jesus would thrive. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.